Scripture reading this morning will come from Romans 8, 35-39. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor the pa- any powers, neither the height nor depth, nor anything, nor anything else in the, all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That never gets old. Never gets old. It's just a good thing. Uh, we are uh, about to finish our year-long study of the Bible using the story. Again, if you're a guest with us, we're using that book to chronologically work through, uh, I think there's 32 chapters in the book, and we are getting close to the end. We started in Genesis, made our way through the Old Testament, um, uh, the life of Christ, and then last week we found ourselves in the book of Acts uh, about the church beginning. And what we did in that study, if you're with us, remember we talked about how uh, we see the early church uh, opening and, and, and becoming and, and it's fulfilling all the prophecies. But what we see is that church, what we see in Scripture, is sometimes different than what we sometimes per, uh, push on the church or think of the church. And a couple of things we talked about. The church is not a movie theater where we come to be entertained. It's not a restaurant where we come to be served and, and waited on. It's not a shopping center where we just come to, to shop and get what we want. It's not a gas station where you just swing in once a week to fill your tank and then uh, go on and not think about it. It's not a fitness center where everybody's already in good shape. What we read in Scripture, not just in the book of Acts, but throughout uh, the rest of the New Testament, the church is a family. Uh, not a perfect family, uh, but a family nonetheless people who are committed, brothers and sisters. The last words that Jesus spoke to his church leaders before he ascended to heaven, those that would help bring this kingdom about, they're found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look, look at these instructions. We've read these a couple of times in the last, coming, last several weeks. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we work our way through the book of Acts, we kind of see it outlines what that looks like. It shows us the mission and then how these followers, men and women, set about to uh, make that mission come about, to make that vision happen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we read they return to Jerusalem. And then through chapters 8 through 12, we read about the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem, uh, there through Judea and into Samaria. And then Acts 13 through 28, it begins to spread throughout the rest of the world, really fulfilling what Jesus shared there in Acts chapter 1. What we're going to do is start in the book of Acts uh, chapter 13. So if you want to open your Bibles and follow along, that's where we will be. Most of the verses will be on the screen as well. But we have here these church leaders who are taking the gospel out past Jerusalem. They're going into Judea. They're going into Samaria and then into the world. So what you read here in the book of Acts, uh, these apostles, Peter and some of the others, in fact, namely we read about Paul, who became this person of amazing influence. He started off as Saul, 
and God set His heart on him. He changed not just his name, but changed his character. Seems to be the least likely person to do the job that God wanted him to do. You would think, you know, if you're going to go to the Gentiles, you would choose a Gentile. If you're going to go to the Romans, you'd choose a Roman. If you were going to go to the Germans, you'd choose a German. But he didn't do that. He chose this Jew of Jews in Paul to reach the Gentiles, which is surprising. And so we read through the book of Acts, and what we realize is it's not up to us to tell God, well, here's how you're going to work. Okay, God, here's the plan, and here's what you need to do to make the plan come about, because God has his own plan. And we've learned this throughout the story, that God will do what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is redeem his people, to tell his people about this Jesus, and he chooses Paul. Not the likely choice, not the one you would choose just looking on paper, but God oftentimes uses the least likely people to, to bring about his purpose. Because this Paul, we know this in studying the book, he was the persecutor of the Christians. The, the Bible talks about how he, he was destroying the church. He was there when Stephen was stoned. All the, the coats were, were there at his feet. And this is the person that God chooses. And again, it's the consistent truth. God can use anybody. Anybody. Not just those who think are the most qualified. Not just the ones that we would select. But anybody to do his will. Sometimes we get a little discouraged. Sometimes we see ourselves maybe as one who doesn't have as many talents. Or maybe our time has passed. Maybe our energy is not what it used to be. Or maybe we're too young. Or we just come up with so many excuses or, or reasons. But what we read over and over again. Don't forget this. It's so often the least likely person that God will use to be his messenger, to be his example, to be his ambassador. But the early church, they would have been afraid of Paul. If we were living at that time, we wouldn't have wanted to listen to him. We wouldn't have believed in his conversion. And so many of them had the same view of Paul. They saw him as an enemy of the church. Enemy number one, really. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, the Lord tells Ananias, one of the early church leaders, that Paul, these are the words, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And he goes on in the next verse to talk about how he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God can use anybody, even take his number one enemy and turn him into really a number one ambassador. And God uses Paul in some dramatic ways. And so as you read through the book of Acts, what we know are these missionary journeys. And we're familiar with our Bible. You've got the map in the back, and you can kind of plot them out. And, and it's kind of interesting how he goes to all these places, and sometimes he backtracks, and he's teaching, not always with good news or good response. Sometimes it's not so good. He starts talking to the Jews. They didn't stay there. He goes and moves on and will talk to the Gentiles and, and others. He writes 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. This Saul who becomes Paul becomes a great person for the cause of Christ. Now we don't have time to go through all of his life. That we can't really track all three of his missionary journeys in, in one lesson this morning. But what I want to do in our lesson this morning, I hope you're studying the chapter. And even that's just a, a quick overview of kind of where all he went and then some of the letters that he has uh, writes during this time. But what I want to do is kind of get a feel for the ministry. Can I get an idea of what it would have been like if you were traveling with him or, or maybe if you were there in one of these cities and, and the Saul who became Paul came teaching? What would you observe? 
What would you hear? What would you note? And if you were retelling the story, how would you explain that? So his first missionary journey begins in Acts 13. Look at verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Sent them off. Those are small words, and we could read that rather quickly, but that's no small thing. To take these two, Paul and Barnabas, to the church's most effective communicators, your heavy hitters, the ones that people like to listen to, the ones that were so persuasive and, and, and able to, to communicate the message so well, and send them off. See, there's a part of us where we would want them to stay with us. We like them. They're a part of our family now. They're, God's doing good things here. But to take some of your best and to send them off for the kingdom. And that's what we see here in the early church. They weren't just focusing on their needs, on their community, on their congregation. They too had the spirit of the mission. They had the vision of the gospel spreading throughout all the world. So they sent off Paul and Barnabas after fasting and praying for them. I, I put on the screen a, a map here to trace that first missionary journey. In fact, again, you might want to turn to the back of your Bible. You might have one that, that you like better. But I want you to see this. It, it starts in Antioch, and it's kind of a hub for the early church. It's there on the right side or the east side of the map there. Uh, and you see that's where it starts at Antioch. They sent from Antioch, they sailed to the island of Cyprus, Again, that's where Barnabas is from. This is his home. They preach in the synagogues for, in Cyprus. They travel throughout that area. Then they arrive at Paphos. This would be the seat of the local, uh, local Roman government. The Roman proconsul is there. Uh, and again, in chapter 13, it, it, it mentions as he walk, you walk through there that he is, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. These Roman governors, these rulers, become Christians while they're there. Then they go to Perga and Pamphylia. And this is where we read about John Mark, who for whatever reason gets cold feet, decides to go back home, maybe just homesick. We don't really know what goes on. It's not good. He leaves the mission. He abandons. He heads back home. Paul remembers that. Not an easy thing for Paul to, to get beyond. But that happens in Perga. And then from there, they travel about 100 miles by foot. That would have been difficult terrain for them to make that journey. Don't think about, well, that's just a hop, skip, and a jump. See, for you and me, a 100-mile trip, well, that could be for a business meeting. Sometimes we'll drive 50 miles for a nice restaurant, won't we? I mean, but 100 miles on foot, this would have been a big deal. They're in another town called Antioch, the Antioch of Pisidia. Paul again preaches in the synagogues there. We read here that both the Gentiles and the Jews responded to the gospel being preached. So we're already seeing Paul's model, his, his, his method. He would go there and, and, and just like Jesus Christ, just share the good news. He would start the synagogue often with the Jews. Sometimes they listened, sometimes they didn't. But he didn't just stop there. He was always teaching about who God is and why Christ came. From that second Antioch, the city in Antioch, they then head to Iconium. There in Iconium, they, they spend a considerable amount of time here. But eventually... The Jews become jealous, and they push them out. They oppose them, and they head on to Lystra. Lystra is a totally pagan city. It's not where you would think, well, that looks like a good church town. Good, decent, moral folks. They need to hear about Jesus. That was not this town at all. 
but the people respond pretty well to the gospel. The Jews are following them, not because they're interested. They're really jealous again. They, the mob kind of comes together. They rise up and stone Paul. They stone him, leave him for dead outside the city. From there, Paul and Barnabas go down to a town called Derby. Many of the people respond to the gospel there. And then they retrace their steps. They go back to all these places and visit the churches to encourage and to teach them to establish leaders in all these different congregations. So that's a very quick, very quick overview of what happens in this first missionary journey. And I say quick, because what did that take? Three minutes? But I want you to think about what this would have been like in Paul's day. They're not talking, uh, taking cars, driving 70 miles an hour down four-lane interstates. They're not jumping on airplanes. They don't even have trains. He's going by foot. Oftentimes, it would even be a difficult journey. Listen to how Barry Bietzel in his book, The Atlas of Bible Lands, describes this travel, the physical demands. The New Testament registers the equivalent of about 13,400 airline miles. Get that. 13,400 airline miles that Paul would have journeyed. He would have sailed across stormy seas. We know of several shipwrecks. The roads would have been primitive paths, many of which were unsafe and largely controlled by bandits, and there would have been mountainous terrain. So it's a difficult journey. Here's what I want us to do in our study. There's one word I really want you to focus on, and I put the blocks in there for you to fill in, and that is the word journey. I don't want us to take that missionary journey and think, well, that's Paul. I want us to think all of us are on a journey. So you just fill in the blanks there, journey. Let that describe your Christian life because, think about it, in other places, Scripture talks about being a Christian as being a sojourner, as this world is not my home, that we're a traveler. So we're on a journey too. And we're thinking about a journey, and some of you have been even this past week. You know, you've got a destination. This is where I'm going. And so much of the journey is about getting to the destination. But what I want to do and think about this, it's not just where you're going. That is important. But I want to see, as we study this, is who we are as we go. It's important to know where you're going, but who are you as you go through this journey? And I want to give some, some attention to Paul here and notice his life, the transformation that occurs. There's so many things that we can just watch and observe. I mean, for most of us, I think we can study these maps and we can look up these cities and get a little bit of background about them, and that's well and good. Some of us have even been able to visit them. Not most of us, but some of us have. But I think what we can do is just kind of quickly look over. Well, that was Paul. So what I want to do is think on this journey that God has us on, what can we learn from him? How can we let him be an example? And how can that mark our journey? So as we study through this first missionary journey, the first word, if you fill in the blanks there, I want you to gather from Paul is the word commitment. And you see this early on. He is intentional. He is passionate. Maybe you put those words out there. This is Paul. He is faithful. That's a good Bible term. I mean, he knows his mission. He knows what he has set out to do. And it's a really difficult journey. But Paul is faithful all along the way. See, it's easy to assume, and sometimes I fall on this, and I think you fall on this trap too, it's easy to assume that if you're on God's path, then things are going to work out, Right? If you're following God, he's going to open a window. You ever heard that kind of talk? If you're following God, he's going to open the door. 
Or maybe if you meet a closed door, you think, well, that must not be where God wants me to be because I'm facing some kind of opposition. Things are not going well. I'm not sure where you get that, but we don't get that from looking at Paul because there were many slammed doors and closed windows. When he firmly believed he was doing the will of God, he met some opposition. And that's putting it mildly, very difficult journey at times. Look on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul here just puts into a, just a short paragraph a little bit about his experiences. Beginning in verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Think about lashes, what that means. 195, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the country, in dangers at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled. I have, been, I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Not a good trip, is it? Does that sound like God's taking care of him? So it would be really easy to look at his circumstances and say, wait a minute, I think he's making some poor choices here. Where is God in all of this? But Paul is committed. Through all the difficulties, through all the challenges, Paul was committed. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He kept going. So we're reading Lystra. Look there in Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and went over the crowd. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But then verse 20, look what it says. After they stoned him, left him, for his left him for dead, it says he got up and went back into the city. Would you do that? I mean, you've got this opposition. They don't just tell you to leave. They try to kill you, leave you for dead, and he gets back up and goes back into the city. You think one of those rocks really hit his head. I mean, for sure. We read later that he visited the city again. He came back to check on the Christians to establish leaders there. He wouldn't give up. I mean, he was steadfast. He got up and went back. And if that was my biography, it wouldn't read that way. If I went to a town and I preached there and they stoned me, left me for dead, it would say, and he died. End of story. Or it would say he got up and walked away like a little girl. I don't know how it would read, but it probably wouldn't read. He got up and went back into the city. Paul was so committed to the mission. Amazingly so. Don't just quickly read through this. Let that soak in. He was faithful despite the opposition. And I think that is something that every one of us need to hear. Because we want the easy path. We want God to always just give it to us on a silver platter. We want to be able to say the prayer and turn around, and, and maybe not the, tomorrow, but the next day, we want it to happen. And to think to have this kind of opposition, you can have talents, you can have gifts, you can have resources, or so we sometimes spiritualize all that and call it blessings, but if you're not faithful, you're not going to have much of a story to tell. So we have a tendency to kind of trade on our gifts and our talents and not really be as committed as we should. 
I truly believe the most effective servants in the kingdom are not always the most talented. They're not always the most resourceful. They don't always have the most gifts, but they are the most faithful. And they never give up. If there's something to be done, they show up. If there's a need, they're there to help. They rejoice with those who rejoice and they weep with those who weep because they love their family. It's not about pocketbook and it's not about age in life and it's not about all the things that we often evaluate people. They are committed to the kingdom. So I want to challenge you in that, on your journey. I know it's hard sometimes. I know you're tired and there's times where you become weary and you wonder if it's just worth it. You thought you were being faithful to what God had called you to do and it hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. Don't give up. Remember that, that movie, Rudy, the football movie? came out a couple years ago. Rudy's this undersized, no-talented kid who wants to play so badly. He tries out and makes the University of Notre Dame football team as a walk-on, but really he's just there for all the practices. But he just won't give up. And even in practice, you would think it's the biggest thing in life. And he gives it all that he has. And one of the star players, one of the most talented players, O'Hara just kind of gives him some, just, just gives him a hard time. O'Hara says this in the movie. It says, it's the last practice of the season, and Rudy acts like it's the Super Bowl. That's what his complaint was to the coach. And the coach turns to O'Hara and says this, O'Hara, you just summed up your entire sorry career in one sentence. I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I think for some of us, that may be the way we could look at our lives. We're you know, this is all a practice, and one of these days we're going to be in the Super Bowl. One of these days we're going to have a moment of faith. One of these days we're going to have that time where God's going to use me. And so in the meantime, we're just kind of going through the motions in this thing called practice. We always mean to be a little more intentional. We always meant to, to work harder. We're going to be more passionate. But life just passes us by. So moms, on your journey... May I challenge you, never give up. You have a most spiritual challenge of souls in your home. You can be such an influence on those young ones. I know it's hard. You're tired. It's easy to let one day turn into the next. But if you commit to being passionate about what God has called you to, to waking up early... You give it all you've got for your kids. You are just constantly praying over them. Don't quit. I know we as a church don't say thank you enough. It is hard. But you be faithful. And know that even in a church gathering, when we hear that wailing child, we praise God. Now, if it goes on for two or three minutes, we want you to do something about it. But we're glad you're here. And even the times where you're just going under, and maybe you're not even here, we've not forgotten you. Don't give up. And husbands, would you commit to the hard work of spiritual leadership in your home? Does it come automatically? It's so easy to just come home from a hard day at work, sit in the recliner, just veg, tell yourself, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll be intentional tomorrow. Hear God's call, His challenge, to be intentional today, to be committed today. Your families need you, so don't give up. 
for all of us who are working, and tomorrow is a work day, you got to get up with the alarm and go back to work. Let me challenge you to go to work with a different spirit. Today I'm going to do my job for the glory of God. I don't work for my boss. I work for my king. I'm not just trying to get by. I'm not just punching a ticket. My life, even my job, is a worship to him. And for all of us as followers of Jesus, would you just be committed to saying, you know, this is not going to be a gas station where I come in to fill my tank and then I go about my rest of the week and not really think about who I am and this mission, this journey that God has called me on. We are to be committed every day walking as followers. That's what marked Paul's life. You cannot read through the book of Acts and not see that page after page. Well, number two, here's another quality I think that demonstrated Paul's life, and that's joy. Joy. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but I'm just amazed at the joy of Paul. In Pisidia and Antioch, they were visiting the church there, establishing the church, preaching the gospel. Things were going pretty well. Acts 13, verse 44. It says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word from the Lord. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Almost the whole city gathered. Everybody in town showed up. Now, from a preacher's perspective, that's pretty good. I mean, everybody's there. But then we read, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They couldn't stand it. They talked abusively against Paul and what he was saying. Right when things seemed to be going so well, the crowds were coming. The message, the gospel message was being received by people. Then they start to face this opposition. Verse 50, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And then look at verse 51. Talks about Paul and Barnabas as they shook off the dust of their feet. And then in verse 52, I love this. It says, and they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Joy. If you mark in your Bible, circle that one. They were filled with joy. I mean, when things were going so well and then things seemed to be falling apart, I mean, they were falling apart. Not just seeing they were. The story ends with they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Joy marked his journey. Even when things didn't go well. See, too often, I know for me, and I think maybe for you, too often our joy is dependent upon our circumstances. Do you ever feel that way? When we think about being joyful, we kind of look around and think, well, am I having a good day? Or, or how are things going? Oh yeah, I'm joyful. I'm in good health. I'm joyful because my finances are, are okay. They're in a better place. Or if the person I elected won... Or if my team won, then I have joy. You know, that's what typically determines our joy. It's circumstantial, but not Paul. Paul had this way, I don't know, I can't explain it, but I read it about just kind of lifting above the circumstances. You read about this, everything didn't just turn out great. Everybody didn't always hear his words and, and, and accept. Sometimes he faced serious opposition. His joy was the Lord. There's a passage in the Old Testament that says, May the joy of the Lord be your strength. And that continues on. Not your circumstances, not the conditions. You know, there are several things in life that are very unpleasant. You know, like getting a shot, that's unpleasant, isn't it? Or maybe getting your finger slammed in a door, that's a bad one. You know what I'd also put in that top ten list? Getting a family portrait made. 
Isn't that up there? It's not a fun thing. Remember when your kids were little? Some of you are still there. I mean, you make the appointment, you, you kind of you pick out the clothes, I mean, you, you get everybody ready, and, and, and then you, you go to the appointment, and, and then they're trying to arrange everybody, and then you want it to be just right, and then it becomes a power play. Did that ever happen with you and your kids? They don't want to be there. They don't want their hair doing this. They don't want their clothes. They don't. They don't. That's all it is to it. So then, as good, wise parents, we start bribing and threatening and all these things right there in front of the photographer. We have no shame. So we want the kids to smile. And we say, smile, and then they kind of do this. You ever had your kid do that for a picture? It's like this forced teeth smile. It looked natural. Does that describe our joy? I got joy. We say it. But you look at that picture and think, there is nothing joyful. That was an awful day. Even as parents, you're glad it's over. And you're wondering why you even went in the first place. Paul's joy was not based on circumstances. It was deep down. It came from the Lord. And we see again in verse, in in chapter 16, a second journey here, a second missionary journey. He's traveling with Silas. Uh, uh, instead of Barnabas, verse 22, it says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten, and they were severely beaten. They're thrown into prison to make sure they didn't escape. This prison now, remember the the context here, this is a dungeon-type prison. But not only that, their, their feet are clamped in stocks. So they're in prison in a dungeon. They're chained up. Well, that's the worst scenario for a preacher, you know? You do a good job, you just, just, just preach all you've got, preach your heart out, and what do they do? They cart you off and throw you in prison. Paul preaches, and it couldn't have been worse. They beat him, throw him in this dungeon, chained up. Look at verse 25. About midnight here in the inner dungeon, Paul and Silas, again beaten with the rods, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. How does that happen? Have you ever thought about that? I know we're familiar with this story, but just stop and think about what's going on. He's preaching. They don't just not hear him. They throw him into prison. And not just prison, it's a dungeon. And not just a dungeon, but now he's chained up. Silas looks over at Paul and says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And Paul said, yeah. What song you got in mind? And they launch into worship. How does that happen? It's not because they're saying, woe is me. And they're not because they're saying, God, where are you? It's because they've got a joy that's down deep. Well, here's number three. Another quality of Paul we see. And that's love. You might have put this first. You see the love of Paul. He showed love to the Gentiles. He reached out to the lame man in Acts 14. That jailer that threw him in prison... In Acts 16, by the end of the night, he's in the home. He's baptized the whole family. And his enemy, at the start of the day, is his brother in Christ. Before it's all said and done. And then before we see patience with Paul on the journey. Patience as he preached to the people who wouldn't listen. Patience as he prayed to God to remove that thorn in the flesh. And God said no. Patience with the Jews who were constantly working against him. The people who had such an advantage that should have been helping him became such an enemy to him. 
It's so easy to study these journeys and just focus on the locations and go, okay, he went here and he went here and he went back to here and he went back to there and I see it on the map, got it. But we don't get it. Here's what I want you to catch. It's not so much where you're going. It's who you are as you go. Because God's going to put you in situations where sometimes people will hear the good news and other times, not so much. Paul was marked by commitment and passion and the intention, this joy, this, this love, this patience. And the list goes on and on. How did he do it? Isn't that the question? How did he do it? Here's the secret, I think. I think it's who he traveled with. And it's not Barnabas. It's not Silas. It's the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit takes center stage. We read about it 57 times. It's one of those times where it's good to circle it or, or highlight it with a special marker and then you go through and you, there it is again and there it is again and there it is again. That's not by accident. The very nature of the Holy Spirit is so difficult to explain. I don't have all the answers. But the Bible is a comparison there. The, the, it's like a wind. You don't see the wind, but you can feel the wind, and you see the effects of the wind. In the book of Acts, he manifests all the attributes of an individual person. It's not this mystery. The Bible helps us to see that the Spirit speaks, and He acts, and He leads, and He calls, and He guides, and He forbids, and He knows, He teaches, He decides, He comforts, He encourages, He even grieves. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor, the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. That word another, there's two words in Greek that could be rendered another. There's another, which means heteros, means another of a similar kind. But there's another word, allos, A-L-L-O-S, that means another of exactly the same kind. And then allos is the one Jesus used here. I'm not going to send you somebody who's kind of like me. What he's saying is, I'm going to send someone who's exactly like me. This God who became flesh is the God who became spirit. And he lives inside of each of us. He goes on to say in John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your own good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul, I think, would say, that's how the journey works. If you want to know the secret, that's the secret. It's your travel companion. In Galatians 5, he calls this the fruit of the Spirit. And you remember all those things he lists, the ones we included in ours, and so many more. And it's from within. It's not because you're more determined. It's not because of the way you're taught. It's not because you've made a decision. It's not because you try harder. It is the Holy Spirit living within you. Very quickly, I won't read the whole story, but in his book, Into Thin Air, author John uh, Craig Cower relates how the, the, the folks who would go up to Mount Everest, the explorers, the, the travelers, the, the adventure seekers would go and, and the difficulty of the terrain. He wrote about a guy named Andy Harris. He was leading one of the expedition. And as they were making their way down, they're so careful, they're so trained, they know what they're doing. He sent the others ahead of him so he could make his way down by himself, kind of pull up the rear. 
But what happened, though, as he was making his way down, he became in dire need of oxygen. So he radios to base camp, and he knows he's not going to make it without getting some of the oxygen. So those who have gone ahead said, we left it there for you. There's several tanks. There are full tanks there for you. Do you see them? And he said, I see them, but they're empty. They're empty tanks. They knew they weren't empty. They were full. And that's when they realized what was going on. He was so deprived of oxygen. He was missing what was right in front of him. He couldn't think straight. He couldn't see straight. Does that not describe what Satan has done to our world? Salvation is so free and it's so available. And sometimes you can talk to somebody and they don't see it. They just don't get it. And it's right there. I think that's how Paul would describe the most important part of the journey. Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, we have that commitment, that, that passion, that love, that joy, all of that. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So let that be our commission. Let that be our challenge. We talked about this in our Sunday school class last week. The book of Acts, sometimes you'll see that in your Bibles as the book of Acts or maybe Acts of the Apostles, but a, a more descript name for the book really could be Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's what you've got. The church continues because the Holy Spirit acts. And it begins with your journey of deciding to accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To confess your faith before others. To let Him wash you clean in baptism and give you that gift, that seal of the Holy Spirit. Let Him make you a new creation. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. Or if we can pray for you in your journey. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe your joy is gone. Maybe we can just help you to refocus. Why don't you come with me?